Acts chapter 7. Uh, if you have the Pew Bible, that's on page 916. <laughs> Give me uh, reading Acts 7, 54 through 8, 3. Please pay special attention again to the reading of God's holy word. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you said that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the light that he brings. We thank you for the words that he spoke. For they are truth and life. God, may your word penetrate deep into our hearts on this day. May we know you more. May we rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're kind of new here, or if you're visiting this morning, you're thinking, what is this guy doing preaching on the execution of Stephen on Christmas Eve? And if you're a regular here, you're not at all surprised. <laughs> we usually don't break up our sermon series to, to do special uh, sermons on Sunday mornings. Uh, last year, we were in the Minor Prophets on Christmas. But I also think this is an incredibly fitting text. Stephen's execution and the events that follow are tied very closely to the content of his lengthy speech that we saw last week in chapter 7, verses 2 through 53. The title of the message this morning is Hope is Born. Now, it's Christmas, Christmas Eve, right? Should be obvious, the birth of the Son of God. You see longing throughout the Old Testament for the birth of a son. The story of Abraham and Sarah longing for a son. Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob and Rachel. Elkanah and Hannah longing for a son, and God gives them Samuel. Zechariah and Elizabeth 
to whom John the Baptist is born. We saw in Isaiah chapter 9 in our Old Testament reading the promise of a son, all pointing forward to the arrival of the Son of God in the fullness of time. And the whole book of Acts is really an unfolding of God's eternal plan to reconcile all things to himself through his Son. So hope was born, as we see in the gospel accounts, celebrated by angels, shepherds, Mary and Joseph. And hope was born not just at Christmas, but at the cross on Good Friday and in the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. And at Pentecost, the death and resurrection and ascension of our Savior all point to hope being born. And in the early church in Acts, what we see is a living out of this reality, a living out of the reality, the truths that we live out in light of the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord. And we see Stephen here, as we've highlighted the last couple weeks, reflecting Jesus in his living, reflecting him in his speech. And now we'll see maybe most significantly reflecting him in his dying. We're going to say, we're going to see three ways that hope is born in this text. I don't know all of the details of your lives. Some of you, I I don't know. Some of you, I, I know the things that are going on in your lives. I know the things that God has been blessing you in, the things that you're rejoicing in this season, things that you're hopeful about for the future. I also know the things that grieve many of you, things that make you long for the birth of hope. And there are things that many of us are dealing with, whether individually or in our families. Again, things that will probably be amplified during this week. Things that will simply not be completely healed or reconciled this side of heaven. And so we long and we wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Lord and Savior. But what does all this have to do then with Stephen's execution? Well, the first thing we see is that hope is born in the beatific vision. So three ways we're going to see that hope is born. First, hope is born in the beatific vision. And that is this unhindered, unveiled sight of God. We'll see this in verse 55, but first Luke sets the stage for us by describing the response of Stephen's hearers. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Looking back, if you weren't here last week, the they is... The Sanhedrin, or what's referred to as the council, and the high priests, the elders, and the scribes, also uh, those of the synagogue of the freedmen. These are those who have gathered together against Stephen. That's the they. And then the, the these things that they heard would be his whole speech from verse 2 in chapter 7 all the way up to verse 53, specifically the contents of 51 to 53 where he calls them out says that they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. This word enraged literally means that their hearts were sawn in two and they grind their teeth. They're fuming mad at Stephen for the things that he has said to them and about them. 
we're meant to notice the stark contrast then, these furious men who Stephen basically called unbelievers in verse 51. We're meant to notice the contrast between them who always resist the Holy Spirit and Stephen here. They're confronted by a young man who is yoked to Christ, unlike them who he calls a stiff-necked people. Picture of an oxen that's stiffening its neck, not willing to be put into the yoke. Stephen is bowing his neck, being willing to be put into the yoke, being yoked with Christ. Their hearts and their ears are uncircumcised, we see in verse 51. Stephen, in contrast, has circumcised ears and a circumcised heart. He believes and he hears God's word. They are said to be always resisting the Holy Spirit. Stephen, we are told, is full of the Holy Spirit. So we're meant to see the stark contrast here between Stephen and his accusers. This isn't just some side note here that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. This is the defining characteristic of someone who believes in Jesus, who hears the shepherd's voice, who knows him and follows him. Jesus talked at length about the coming and the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapters 14 through 16. We see those truths play out then in the book of Acts. Following these things, Paul, who we get introduced to for the first time here in our text, Paul goes on to write at great lengths about the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about Romans chapter 8, that great verse about the Spirit-filled life, or Galatians 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul saw Stephen live and die in reliance upon the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, now what about this beatific vision? We see that in verses 55 and 56. Stephen gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Two things to note here. First, he sees the glory of God. Again, this is this unhindered, unveiled vision of God that he receives right before his death. And then he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Hope is born here because Stephen gets a rare glimpse on this side of heaven as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. He gets a rare glimpse of his shepherd, who is standing to greet him, whose goodness and mercy has followed him all the days of his life, and Stephen, who will now dwell in the house of the Lord forever on the opposite side of this veil of tears. Well, so what of this? Are we to expect this type of visionary experience on our deathbed? Is this commonplace for the Christian Well, I don't think so. You know, maybe you've heard claims of of things like this, but I don't think this is something we should expect. I think this is unique to this situation because I think it further contributed to the accusations against Stephen, which we'll see here shortly. But what if hope is born in Stephen's vision for all believers in Jesus who would come after him? What if this is meant to encourage us, not because this is something that we should 
experience, but that we look back on this and rejoice that Stephen got to experience this, this in this life. What if this was a symbolic removing of a veil, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? A veil that is only lifted through Christ when one turns to the Lord. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 3.18, I wonder if he thought back to Stephen's beatific vision and hoped that the Christians in Corinth and all those who would read these words for the next 2,000 years and beyond, I wonder if he hoped that we would see the significance of this veil being lifted. Paul said, and we all with unveiled face, remember Stephen's shining face at the end of chapter 6, face shining like that of an angel. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now if we keep reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells that tells us that this momentary, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Stephen's vision of God's glory and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God came moments before his death. For us, we need to embrace Paul's description of from one degree of glory to another and this light momentary affliction. We get to see Christ in our suffering, in the sometimes long, drawn-out pain of this life. And though it might not be as dramatic as what Stephen saw, we get to see it too. We get to see Christ And the question for us is, do we, with the eyes of faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, do we see that hope is born in our sight of God? If not, if we don't see, why not? What is hindering us? What patterns of sin or unbelief in our lives are keeping our eyes more fixed on what is seen than what is unseen? That is a good challenge for us, especially in this season. Christmas into New Year, it's a great time to evaluate our lives. You're going to be hearing all the talk, right, about New Year's resolutions and how'd your year go and preparing for the New Year. It's a great time for us as Christians to take stock of where we are at with the Lord. We should always be doing that, but again, it's kind of a a time for that freshness to think about those things. It's a great opportunity for repentance and renewed commitment to a deeper walk with the Lord. Not on our own strength, but a spirit-empowered dependence. I think we certainly see that in Stephen. And we should be encouraged to go and do likewise. Next, we see that hope is born through the church's first martyrdom. Hope is born through the church's first martyrdom. Remember that Stephen was accused at the end of chapter 6 of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, and of speaking against the temple and the law when he quoted Jesus saying that he would destroy the temple and raise it again 
in three days. Stephen's whole speech in chapter 7 was not a defense of himself. We looked at that last week. He wasn't defending himself against these claims, but he actually turned the tables on his accusers. He kind of held up a mirror to them and showed them that they were actually the blasphemers. They are the ones who are against the temple and against the law because of their rejection of Jesus. But we'll see in their rage-filled response in verses 57 and 58 that they didn't take Stephen's words to heart. Instead, they doubled down on their accusations of blasphemy. This is specifically in response to to Stephen calling Jesus the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Now, Every faithful Old Testament Jew would have been familiar with this text. Daniel's vision where one like a son of man comes on the clouds of heaven and the ancient of days gives to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. That's what is unfolding as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the nations in the book of Acts, which we'll see in our next section. But the very connection of this text in Daniel with Jesus is enough to make Stephen's accusers lose their minds. They start shouting in order to overpower Stephen's words, and they cover their uncircumcised ears, hoping to not hear what they are claiming to be blasphemy. Then they rush at him. They cast him out of the city, and they throw stones at him and murder him. We've mentioned that Stephen reflects Jesus in his life and in his death. We see that in verses 59 and 60. Luke is clearly making a connection here between Jesus' death and Stephen's. We said a couple weeks ago that there are up to 10 parallels between Jesus' trial and his execution and Stephen's trial and execution. We see here, They both prayed for their spirit to be received. Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, receive my spirit. Stephen prays to Jesus. Look at verse 59. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is a clear claim then that Jesus was divine. Jesus was the son of God. And then, Lord, do not hold this sin against them is equivalent to Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think it's safe to say that none of us will, almost assuredly, none of us will be stoned to death for our faith in Jesus. But is Stephen's death not still instructive for us? Does it not bring to mind our Savior's command to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus did say when they persecute you and not if they persecute you. And so finally, we see that hope is born through great persecution and God ordained scattering. Hope is born through great persecution and God ordained scattering. Let's pick up at the second line of chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now on the heels of Stephen's execution, there is a doubling down against the church in Jerusalem. We don't know details beyond what's told here. We don't know if others were also martyred. But Luke does tell us that this led to a scattering throughout Judea and Samaria. I call this a God-ordained scattering. Why? Well, remember Acts 1.8, kind of our framework for the whole book of Acts? Jesus said to his disciples just before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were, right? And in Judea and Samaria, kind of these concentric circles, and to the ends of the earth. We see the fulfillment of that here, right? They're in Jerusalem, but where do we see that they're scattered to? Judea and Samaria. We see persecution lead to scattering, leading to evangelism toward the ends of the earth. little teaser for next week. Look down at chapter at verse four. Now when those or now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The result of this scattering was preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is Acts 1:8 being fulfilled. God is working through what appears on the surface to be the worst of circumstances. But this is all part of God's purpose and his plan of redemption. It stands in stark contrast to the purposes of men. You've probably heard the quote before that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If you look at the front of your worship guide, you may have read this already, there's a quote on there from Tertullian who was writing in the second century about the persecution of the church that had continued since Stephen's day. So this is a little over 100 years after these events. Tertullian writes these things. He says, speaking of Christians, we are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, interesting connection to our passage. The word for scattering here is the word to sow, uh, which also is the root word of the word for seed. So this idea of, of scattering is like seeds being sown. Tertullian says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You're scattering us, but you're, you're, actually, you're actually helping us, right? You're, you're scattering the word even farther and broader by killing us. Then he says, you praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And notice, again, the contrast between the purposes of man and the purpose of God. He says, and you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. I love that. When they find out, they join us. He's saying they see us suffering for Jesus. And they look at their own heroes, right? Who maybe suffered or died for other purposes that weren't 
really at the end of the day didn't really mean anything. And they see us suffering for something and dying for something eternal. And they say, I want that. And they join us. Their persecution has the opposite effect, right? They think they're going to get rid of the Christians and they just scatter the seeds farther and wider. That's what's going on here as a result of these events. And it's seen in the verses that I've intentionally skipped, you may have noticed. Look back at chapter 7, verse 58, the second line. Second sentence. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And finally, our last verse, chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Everything is about to change after this. For the next couple weeks, the rest of chapter 8, we've got this big parentheses where we see Philip's ministry in Samaria and with the Ethiopian eunuch. But then we'll return in chapter 9 to Saul. Saul's conversion, which we'll be getting to in chapter 9, I think is a major turning point in Acts. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one who goes to the ends of the earth, as it were. But let us not lose sight of this scene. Saul's story does not have a pretty beginning. Here he is, not only approving of Stephen's execution, but then he's ravaging the church by dragging men and women from their own homes and throwing them in prison. But don't miss this. Hope is born. God will accomplish his great purposes in the face of human opposition against his church. Brothers and sisters, we sit here today, 2,000 years later, as beneficiaries of the same gospel hope. So as we prepare to celebrate how hope was born in a lowly manger, as we meditate on the longing for peace and light in the midst of chaos and darkness in our world, may we not lose sight of how our great God has ordained our salvation and sustained his people through persecution and death. May we remember this Christmas season that a human baby in a manger, helpless and weak, is not the vision of Jesus that we are meant to embrace, but that that of the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God, the victorious recipient of dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. May we serve him and love him, and may we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks and praise. 
We thank you for your love for your people. We thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent your son to come and die for lost sinners. We thank you for your church, God, which you have sustained by your grace, by the power of your spirit for 2,000 years. As we look back, as we look back and reflect on the execution of Stephen, the persecution of Saul against the church, even into the first couple centuries, the reminders of the persecution and, and martyrdom of the saints, which had the reverse effect that the world expected. God, may we see you working today in that same way. When the world speaks against us as evildoers, when persecution comes, may it continue to be a seed that is scattered, a seed of gospel hope that scatters and reaches far and wide that many might come to know Jesus. God, strengthen us this holiday season as we go our separate ways from here, as we spend time with family and friends. We pray especially for those who do not yet know you. Father, give us wisdom, give us boldness to speak of Christ. Give us humility to live out the gospel that we proclaim with our lips. May our lives reflect that as well. Father, continue to build your church for your name and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.